exciting, Jim. But not as we know it. This is big. It is 4.41pm on Thursday the 22nd of September 2022 and you are listening to the Bashcast. afternoon's Bashcast, I go surfing, I run into a campsite, Hitler, and then receive some heartbreaking news. Goal distributions and why the over 3.5 goals market is odds again for the next year of 3.54. Horse racing, some tips, some advice, a big £8,000 win, and a look at why recorded ROI is often a lot higher than expected. Twitch clamps down on gambling streamers. DraftKings USA lose $75 million on an early payout promotion. The Player XG model, some specific examples and confidence updates. And how to deal with losing runs. All of that and more coming up in the Bashcast this afternoon. feedback from episode 195 martin gale says betting talk only nobody cares about all small talk hashtag skip hashtag fast forward martin gale's a good pseudonym name for social media isn't it that's good i like that that's up there what was the feedback yeah an hour and 55 minutes this week of largely useless content most people don't have the time or inclination to sit through these audio marathons to get to things which are actually relevant to advantage players, which is why we're all here. Okay, thanks for that. Um, Would you honestly say the recent podcasts are as useful for advantage players or as effective at getting your message across? I don't know. What message am I trying to get across? I don't know if I'm trying to get any message across. Like some um, 195 episodes of essentially me having a bit of a personal diary talking through what's going on in my life, trying to understand it, and then my betting and trying to understand that, and that's when the betting's going well, and then when the betting is going badly, which it has done since the, um, I started again 10 days ago, small hashtag, small sample size. I don't know, if you want to hashtag fast forward, just fast forward this one, because um, again, it's going to be a mixture of, there's like the, there was a major event in, my life, which I am going to talk through. The reason I'm going to talk it through is simply to help me understand it 
uh, and it's nothing to do with betting. So you can hashtag fast forward or just stop listening, I think, really, if you want to. I mean, no, this is what I always get about it. I want to find these people that are putting guns to these people's heads to force them to listen to it, but whatever. And then Chris, lots of numbers. This wasn't on the Bashcast, but this was when our marketing girl tweeted out the link to the betting people interview. And Chris, lots of numbers, says Star Sports, the lefty-leaning bookmaker. No thanks. Or lefty-loving bookmaker. That's me, socialist Tom. Look, I, I mean, I'm, I am politically agnostic. What is it that they say you shouldn't talk about? Politics? And I don't talk about politics not because I'm, I want to put people off or people are going to disagree with me. It is genuinely because I, I don't I don't have a team on purpose, you know, because I'm trying to... Because I, I think everybody has got a point unless they're quite far-leaning, you know? And so I, I don't feel the necessity to, to, to paint myself a particular colour or whatever. But they don't talk about religion, which I don't... And money, which... I guess Martin Gale would prefer it if I did talk about that a little bit more. But, um, yeah, okay. Thanks for the feedback. Not going to be listening to any of it. So this weekend we had um, we had an event, and I'm going to talk through this because it was just horrific and not, and not particularly amusing and maybe not even of interest to anyone but me but it's the fourth it's been on the forefront of my mind for now uh it's thursday now and it happened on sunday so we're now on day five uh, i think i've managed one day without bursting into tears and then again failed this morning but the weekend last weekend so the queen died uh, which is just the queen dying someone described the bbc news website as mourn hub which it was starting to annoy me. It was like, I didn't think I was going to get to the end of the morning period. Are we still in the morning period? She was 96. She had a good innings. Good on her. Um, but it was getting a bit annoying, I thought. So the, and it affected and disrupted sporting events. Even the golf, which we were flying in in the golf. But they reduced it to a 54-hole tournament. Um, the be was it, yeah the BMW and the fifty when you reduce the number of holes in a tournament that should actually benefit us because it brings in more variance. The longer format you play over, the more likely it is that the favourites, the cream will rise to the top, and so it should actually be a good thing that tournaments get reduced from seventy two holes to fifty four holes unless you're on the favourites, which were generally not um but it so maybe it wasn't frustration maybe, maybe we want more royalty dying i wonder how much longer charles has got so um and then another thing happened because they announced the funeral on the monday was going to be a bank holiday we got to the friday and it was turning into an indian summer um we're late in september and we're still getting 18 19 degree sunny weather days in the uk which is fairly extraordinary and so we had a look at the surf reports and i think on friday we just called it and said we're going to have one more camping and surfing weekend so all of this is just kind of throwing my betting a little bit because i now miss another saturday but you know you have to take advantage of it when you're given a free bank holiday especially since everybody in a sort of paid 
employed position gets this free day. Well, where's our free day for the people that, um, you know, are self-employed or charlatans and layabouts? So we packed up all of our camping gear. We got this new, new sort of teepee bell tent and headed down to the Gower Peninsula. There's this campsite called Hill End Campsite, which I've been to since the late 90s. In the late 90s, it used to be quite a, a sort of party campsite it was kind of famous for. I mean, you were rarely you were rarely in bed before sunrise and sort of campfires on the beach and all of that. And we'd get like 20 or 30 of us down there. And now, of course, we go down there, we got all the kids. So there's about 14 of us. There was seven adults and um, seven kids aged between three and um, 11. And I'll tell you what, the surf conditions on Monday on Rosalie Beach, the waves were just better than I've ever experienced in the UK. They were breaking really far back and they were carrying on for ages and they were quite deep as well. I lost my third pair of sunglasses to the ocean this year when a wave just tossed me about a mile and I fell under the ocean and the paddle of my paddle board went and the paddle board went flying and uh, the sunglasses went flying and um, I, it was one of those where the wave crashes on top of you, you can't immediately get back up, which is, it gets the adrenaline going. It really does. Um, but I've got to stop taking the sunglasses into the ocean because they cost me a fortune. This is why I can never spend more than £10 on sunglasses because they've got a life expectancy of less than 30 days. Um, but on the Monday afternoon, we had about we had three dads um, and seven of the kids and six surfboards and one paddleboard out at the back of the waves. And we went in for a, a half an hour at 9.30 in the morning and we were still out there at 2.30 in the afternoon. Um, because we just couldn't get out because it was it was so much fun. The waves were so big, they were so easy. They carried on for so long. I was starting to learn surfing on a paddleboard, like getting the paddleboard and get uh, walking your feet backwards and changing position as you catch the wave. And it looks hard. It's easier than it looks, and it was great fun. The only frustrating thing is my wife did have to, and she made it clear she did have to get a train from. Worcestershire up to Leeds for work on the Monday evening so we did have to go by a particular time and I was still in the water a long time after we had to leave and I don't know have you seen Point Break does anyone remember the moment in Point Break where Johnny Utah's wife comes into the sea whilst he's learning how to surf to get those bandits the surfing bandits bank robbers and Johnny Utah's wife says to Johnny Utah you know, we really, really do have to go because we've got to beat the bank holiday traffic. I don't remember that scene, but I was being a little bit of a child staying in the ocean way too long. I've never had more fun in my life um, that, uh, in the waves than we did on Rosalie Beach last um, last sun, last Monday morning. If you've never been, this beach is like three miles long and when the tide goes out, it looks like you're somewhere in Queensland in Australia. It's the most extraordinary beach ever. Um, there's a pub called the Worm's Head Pub that you can walk to down on the peninsula and then you can walk all the way back up the beach. At, at the beginning of the summer as well, I think we were walking up the beach, this is last year, and there's about 10,000, no exaggeration, five figures jellyfish just on the beach, which initiated my little daughter's jellyfish fear that she still holds on to to this day. The only slightly frustrating thing about it is this campsite hill end used to be a... Um, um, used to be a bit of a party campsite. And I think as time's gone on, they've clamped down on that a little bit. And as I've got older, 
that that's none for the worse as far as I'm concerned. Um, but we were all sitting around a campfire um, on the Friday, and just the weirdest thing happened. This representative from the campsite scoots down to us on a golf buggy, and it's dark, and we're around a campfire. And if you imagine sitting around all of you having a beer and a glass of wine with all the kids, toasting marshmallows, and then someone makes a beeline towards you in a golf buggy and then sort of just stands up on the golf buggy five metres away from you with the brightest light shining at you. And because the lights are shining at you, you can't see who it is that's talking to you. And he says, um, I'm really not happy with how close the children are to that bonfire. And I'm like, all right. Well, I'm sorry that you're not happy, but... I have to say, like, out of maybe a hundred plus camping nights we've had with the children, there's never been an incident where any of them have got hurt. And also there are children. If I want to burn my children, I will burn my children. But of course you don't want to make a fuss. You're oh, terribly sorry. And you do a sort of phone. Please, can you sort of move backwards, kids? I was a little bit pissed off that he felt the need to say it. And then at the same time, the following night, he comes along... And exactly the same thing. And he does this thing where he stands on the golf buggy with the lights shining. He doesn't say anything immediately. You feel like you're under full interrogation. And then he shouts, I'm really not happy that you've burnt the grass. And he points a flashlight down onto the grass. I'm like, we, mate, we haven't burnt the grass. We're being responsible here. We've lifted the fire up. Um, and that is a black sock. It's not burnt grass and he goes it's not a black sock you've burnt the grass and i'm not happy about that you're going to be charged for that now one we're going to be charged for burnt grass and two it's a sock and we lifted the sock up and then uh, it took him a little bit of time to back down and then he went uh, he didn't back down he went well you're going to burn the grass any minute if any of those logs fall out of the fire right all right okay we'll, very, we'll be very careful he disappears and then he comes back half an hour later half past nine and he says um I'm not happy the the fire's still going. I hope you lot are going to be retiring soon. It's like, I'm 44 years old. Have you just told me to go to bed at 9.30? It's been a long time since people have told me to go to bed at 9.30. And that was a bit odd. And um, he made it very, I don't know, it was the impression of having been bollocks teenagers. It's a strange thing in the service industry. I guess if you're in a high-class restaurant, you expect a little bit of niceties from the waiting staff although i went to the hand and flowers which is britain's only two michelin star pub and the waiting staff serve you wouldn't get away with it in america is all i'm going to say and i guess he's got a little bit where it used to be a party campsite and maybe like there's a lot of teenagers that go to campsites and stuff like that and that is the way that you talk to teenagers but he would, like that's how we felt we felt like we were bollocks teenagers but bollock teenagers who had done nothing wrong and so the guy was just throwing around his authority with no reason whatsoever uh have you ever heard of the stamford prison experiments rewind to a bashcast last summer if you haven't and i go through that but essentially when people just get a tiny little bit of power then they just love it i was at minchin hampton golf club during the summer playing the selly oak shield uh, and we spent, what, 400 quid between the four of us playing our uh, 18 holes. Went to, and this is a course which was a qualifier for the Open this year. So it's a fairly nice course. Went to the clubhouse for a beer afterwards. Clubhouse is dead. The bar staff looked bored. Weirdly, despite there being nobody in there, all of the tables seem to have empty glasses on them. And the bar staff aren't that interested in moving the glasses. So we got some beers and sat down. Um... 
there's no music on. We had to move the, the glasses ourselves. And I'm sat there for a minute or so, and I'm wearing a baseball cap, which I'd kind of just forgotten about from the round. And a lady comes over to me, and I recognize afterwards the lady is the club president from a picture that's on the wall. And she comes over and she just says, take your hat off whilst you're inside. And it wasn't, and golf clubs are, do have these kind of weird sort of fashion dress rules. Um, they, are, they can be quite alienating. I remember a story from up in Muirfield when we were up there that Justin Timberlake did a round with his dad. And then he tried to get into the clubhouse afterwards and they wouldn't let him in because he wasn't wearing the correct attire. We're talking about the most, one of the most fashionable sort of pop icons in the world and these miserable old men who won't allow women to be members say, you're not dressed in a fashion that is correct for us. Same with this lady. There's, I think golf clubs really were refuges for, um, or societies for the post-war generation of undiagnosed PTSD soldiers. And so there were places where men wanted to go where women weren't. But that was the 40s, 50s, 60s. And then you get to the 70s, these people are kind of like passing the baton on and dying. But they leave this culture of real unfriendliness. And all the woman had to say was please or thank you. It wasn't exactly even the request. I can understand you're a pri private golf club if you don't want people to wear hats indoors. Well, one, it's dead in here and you really could be encouraging children, events, people wearing hats if they want to. But whatever, it's, it's your house, it's your rules. But just say, please take your hat off. Or could you take your hat off, please, and thank you. No, don't bark an order at me. And same with this guy down at the campsite. I mean, he could have said, look, guys, you know, I'm a little concerned about um, the children being a bit too close to the bonfire. Anyway, he barked at Aris and just left that sour taste in uh, the mouth after pretty much the best day surf ever in the UK that we'd experienced. Then we travel home and we get the news that has torn me up all week. And because I'm thinking about it all the time, I'm sharing it with you. Um, and that is that... Um, um, on Sunday, whilst we were down in Wales, my daughter Anne is six. My daughter Sasha is six. My son Ewan is four. And they have friends, Finley and Leo, who are six and four. Sasha sits next to Finley in her classes and Ewan sits next to Leo in his reception class. Um, and we get the news that they were playing the two boys on a gate, which was... Um, obviously attached to some sort of wall and um, there was an accident and the wall fell over and it hit both the boys Finley escaped with just some minor cuts and Leo's skull was crushed by the wall against the gate and little Leo died on um, Sunday evening um and so on monday on the way home we had to tell the kids this and it's kind of mad that you and at the age of four simply is too young to understand it sasha at the age of six understands a little bit more but doesn't know how to react on sunday night my wife had gone away for work i think i woke up at midnight one two, three, four, and five to go and check that Ewan was still there in his bed and sleeping. Um, and it's just 
so unbelievably unfair. It's a weird one. You know, the queen dying didn't affect me. It didn't affect the kids. It didn't affect anyone. She was 96. She had an innings. If I die in an accident, I'm 44, and I had 44 years worth of experiences and everything like that. And even there was on the news, there was this 15-year-old boy who was stabbed to death by um, by a 16-year-old. Um, and whilst that's tragic, in those instances, well, I'm the 16-year-old had 16 years of life to live. I've had 44 years of life to live. This four-year-old boy hasn't had any life to live. And in the in a car crash or in this stabbing, even in an accident or something deliberate, you can find someone to blame. You know, you could blame the murderer, blame someone who was recklessly driving. But, you, you know, even if you, even if it was an accident and you shouldn't be blaming someone, I think that helps. But in the case of a wall just falling over, there's no one to blame there. I mean, no one knows when a wall's going to fall over, especially with just two little kids playing on the gate that was attached to the wall. So there's no one to blame and he didn't have any life. And I, it's affected me so, so much. Um, it's been, to, this week's been a write-off of me just, like the school run with all the parents hugging and crying and everything like that. I sent a, I, I sent a bouquet of flowers to, um, to his mum and dad, Eva and Jason, um, and you meant to write something on the thing, and I couldn't find any words. Like, if someone if someone dies, normally I said, uh, you know, and if you know, big love to you, I, I'm thinking about you and everything like that. There were no words that felt reasonable to write on this card about Leo. You know, we all broke up on Friday, as normal, for a, a weekend, and then when I took the kids to school on Tuesday, Leo wasn't there anymore and there was um, a space on his desk. And then I went to pick the kids up on Tuesday night and it's after school club and there's Sasha's name and there's Ewan's name and I have to sign them both out. And underneath Ewan's name, there's Leo's name and there's just a cross next to his name because he's not going to be going to after school club anymore. And that got me. And so I, I sort of welled into tears on the way to the car. And I tried to pull it together because it's just me and the kids. And I say to the kids, um, how was your day? Did the school talk about Leo? How was Finley, the older boy? Because Sasha sits next to Finley in school. Well, he went back to school on the Tuesday. And um, apparently they were talking about foods in the class. And someone was talking about lettuce. And Finley said, um, oh, my brother likes lettuce, but I don't like lettuce. And Sasha, who is six and, of course, didn't mean anything by it because she doesn't know how to react. But she turns to Finley and says, you don't have a brother anymore. And then she told me that story and I went again. Um, there's no moral or there's no point really in this story other than it's the one thing that I can't, I can't get rid of. I probably don't think I want to get rid of it either. But um, I'm very low on tolerance for idiots right now. Um, anyone that left feedback on what they'd like to hear about the, uh, from the Bashcast probably left it at the wrong time. The person that just went on YouTube, tagged my name and called me a knob, can fuck off. I'm not in the mood for it. Um, you are a pathetic waste of space. The fact that you think you're spending your entire life trying to wind me up, trying to just spread negativity and everything like that, go do one, right? I think I gave everyone a little bit of a benefit of the doubt in the last Bashcast as I went through some feedback and tried to see if there was anything I could take for it that was um, self-improvement. Fuck off, right? I'm done with you. Everyone, everyone's... Not, 
The only person I'd blocked previously was Jeff Banks because he did my head in. But now the block, everyone's just getting blocked now. Just got you gone, right? I don't have the time for it. I don't have the inclination for it. Okay, go and find someone else to wind up. Go and find something else to spend your time on. I couldn't care less if you waste your life. I'd rather you were dead and Leo was around, to tell you the truth. That's what I think of you, because I feel like you're wasting the opportunity that he doesn't have anymore. Um, uh, there's this thing called um, negative inversion theory, I think, or negative regression theory or something like that. It's kind of like I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I've never really uh, experienced what it's like to be depressed. Some people are wired, I think, and I'm, in, a, in a way that they suffer from bouts of depression. I have friends that have for years and I'm, I feel very sorry for them. And, you know, in, in the same way that some people are wired to experience it a lot, some people are wired to never experience it and I follow, I fall in the latter camp. But a therapist, a doctor friend of mine was telling me about this thing called negative either inversion or regression theory where they t they give it to depressed people and what you're meant to think is um, um, if you're ever feeling down or low or you're missing the big picture, put yourself into a place where life is unimaginably worse than it is just now. What I like to do is I like to imagine I'm in prison. I like to imagine I've killed someone when I was drunk, um, which is a recurring dream that I always have. I've, got, I've had a blackout drunkness and I've killed someone. I've gone to prison. And I really imagine the cell, the bunk bed, the sweaty man that I'm sharing it with. Um, sometimes this actually helps me as well with um, betting on losing runs as well. So there is a bit of a appropriateness and applicability there. Um, um, and I think, um, you know, my liberty, my freedom has been taken away. I don't have a mobile phone. I don't have access to the internet. I have to eat the food that they give me every day. I have to, uh, I'm taken away from my children. I can't see my own children. And then I snap out of it and I put myself back into where I am in the current day. Um, or you could think maybe that you were a refugee coming over the, uh, over the channel and you've left everything behind you and then you've got to start a new life and then you snap away from that experience to where you are just now and what it can do is it can sort of try and make you put things into perspective and um, uh, it, it enables you to focus a little bit more and the strange thing about this negative inversion regression theory is having a bit of a sick and twisted mind I really don't mind thinking about the absolute worst but I can't think about what Jason and um, Eva are going through um, like that was what that's one place that my mind won't allow me to take myself to just because I'm not entirely sure how you get over it other than the fact that you do have an older child who is six and you have to kind of get over it for them. Um, you have a responsibility for them, but I don't know how. It's not, um, it's not like Christmases could be the same for the, the next few years or ever again, is it? So... Um, I'm all, I'm sharing this because I'm trying to help myself essentially and uh, rest in peace, little Leo. <laughs>
sort of focus on uh, one on um, probability distributions in football. I'm mainly going to talk about horses, which is a real bread and butter for most people. But let's have a look at... Um, yeah, so if you've got any, by the way, fire them in Tom at BuckyBashing.net or a DM on Twitter. By the way, the golf, the Open de France, there's 121 people have gone out into the field. And I have covered eight players for 11% of the field. And my, my guys are... Out of 122 players, they are 122nd, 121st, and 115th. So Oli Becker, who is 60 to 1, has shot 9 over. Um, Langask, who was 66 to 1, has shot 8 over. And Victor Dubuisson, who was, okay, fair enough, 175 to 1, is... Um, Five over. What? I mean, I try not to look too short-termish with the golf. One tournament means nothing, and always you'd. It's kind of weird when I'm covering this amount of the field. I'm sort of looking for one player to place, and that'll be money back. I mean, it'll be a rough money back, rough loss, little win, depending on the amount of value that we thought he was, and the Kelly staking on him. Or, um, but still. To have three players who really, you know, two of them were the shorter odds here to be right at the back of the field is fairly extraordinary. Um, still, Coetzee's in sixth and Ramsey's, well, he's two over after four. Yeah, no, this looks like an absolute shocker. No two ways about it. So, weird one going on in Open to France. It's weird. I'm saying this now in the middle of round one or towards the end of round one, so... It will be interesting to see if we even turn a profit or not. I'm saying it's shockingly bad just now, and you never know. We may end up making a profit. What was it that was on a couple of weeks ago that was an interesting one? Uh, it was the Italian Open. You see, whilst we didn't get the winner, Victor Perez had a three-foot putt to get into a playoff. Could easily have gone and won. And of course, once we're into playoffs, we're definitely winning, aren't we? But what was mad there was that um, I had eight players, and I think um, seven of the eight made the cut. Arnaus didn't make the cut um, because he shot like he, w he was in the top ten on the first round, and then shot a million over in the second round. But if you look at my fantasy draft team, all six players made the cut there, and all six players made the cut in the Fortinet. And in the Fortinet, I only had Taylor Montgomery place, and I only had Victor Perez and H Lucas Herbert place in the. Um, in the um, Italian Open and nobody over in the live. And so I think it was a small net loss over the week. But actually, if you look at it, you'd rather have that week after week after week after week. We're doing all the right things. It's just so many of the players are making the cut and then maybe finishing 20th, 30th or something like that. Well, that's what you want. You just want to have that week after week after week. You don't want to have, you know, Coetzee, who is in sixth, two shots off the lead, could go on and win this and we could have a massive profit. But if all honesty... If Coetzee is the only one that makes the cut and the other seven don't make the cut, I mean, Becker, Lengask and Dubuisson don't look like they're going to. Even though Coetzee wins, you wouldn't want to repeat this tournament over and over and over again because the average performance of your eight players isn't good enough. So it's, it's so weird, golf. It's like if all eight players make the cut and finish 10 to 20th, you're not going to make any money. It's a full bust. But actually, that's a great tournament. It's a weird way of looking at it. Um... So this looks utterly shocking anyway. Someone asked um, an XG query, right? And I actually thought this was a really interesting query. It was a, it was a good question. Um, 
he says, um, I think I, I'm just a bit naive about it, to be honest. Well, okay, the first thing is that stupid people don't ask questions. Stupid people don't put their hands up and say, I don't understand, right? So the first thing, I like there's loads of stuff that I don't understand. I've never been ashamed to, in any scenario, to put my hand up and go, I don't understand what you're saying or I don't understand this, right? Um, so congrats for just, you're not naive. You're asking a question, that's good. Um, I think my understanding of XG was a, perhaps a little bit too simple and it's far more complex than I thought. I've basically been looking at the Arsenal versus Ajax women's game and the XG is 3.54. So the XG of Arsenal Ajax is 3.54. An interesting one here, I was looking at this game. Um, William Hill had both teams to score in this game and the Rangers-Benfica game at 6-1. to one. Um, we priced the fair odds up in the morning at 4.54, but what happened is we had to put it up as static because we couldn't estimate Ajax's price. And when you can't estimate one team's price, then there's no way of working out what the XG is. And the reason we couldn't work out their price is because the, the exchange was all over the place. The exchange was trading from 10 all the way up to 80 for Ajax women. It's like they couldn't make their minds up on them. Well, for us, when we couldn't get the fair odds for Ajax women, we couldn't come up with an XG for the team. So we did a pencil calculation in the morning, and it was 7, 4.54. And then it had drifted a little bit in the afternoon. This is for the double, the both teams to score double. And really, it's because we don't know the odds, what the expected, what the odds are of Ajax women scoring. I mean, the spreads had them down at like 0.2 goals. But we're now in England-Andorra territory. Um and they kept fluctuating in and out and in and out. What we were sure of was 6-1 to one was a huge price by William Hill. If you looked at the bookies themselves, I think the top price was about 3-1. to one. We were 4.54. Some people thought it was higher than 6-1. to one. Well, this is one where if you think it's higher than 6-1, to one, it's probably because you think Ajax women's prices should be closer to the 80-1 to one mark. But even the exchange didn't know what Ajax women should be. Anyway, not only did both teams score in Ajax and Arsenal and Benfica and Rangers, but all teams got two plus goals. So that's six to one if you're on it. William Hill absolutely got smashed in. And I love those bets. Why did it look like ridiculous EV? Because you would never get that in the Champions League final because of the certainty. You remove some of the certainty and you find opportunity. Uh, and Arsenal versus Ajax women is a lot easier to take advantage of than Arsenal versus Ajax men. Going back to the question. Um, in my head, I can't understand why the over 3.5 goals price was therefore over 2. It was 2.1 when the XG is 3.54. And I get what he's saying here. I understand where he's coming from. He's saying, he's thinking there's an average of 3.54 goals in this match so that the average should is higher than over 3.5 meaning that over 3.5 should be odds on and i think this is a little bit of a confusion of modes and medians and means but more so about goal distributions when the expectancy is 3.54 he goes on to say my basic thinking was that it should surely be slightly odds on if the expected goals is higher than the 3.5 line but when you adjust the goal line to over three under the over alpha column, the true price is 2.12. Incidentally, this falls exactly into line with Betfair. So what he's saying there is that our calculator says that over three goals is 2.12. And that was what was available exactly on Betfair. Why is this? 
And I, I get the question, right? So essentially he's going, if it was 2.51, the expectancy for the match over 2.5 should be odds on because it's higher than 2.5. So it should be happening more often than it wouldn't be. It doesn't quite work like that. It's The line of 2.5 and 3.5 is almost a little bit arbitrary. But what you've got to think of in your head is distribution. Think of zero goals. How many times does zero goals come in? How many times does one goal come in? How many times does two goals come in? How many times does three goals come in? So we know roughly how many times zero comes in because look at the nil-nil price, right? But for over 3.5, we have to add zero to one to two to three, exactly zero to exactly one to exactly two to exactly three. And if we get, if we do that, then we've got the under 3.5 price. And what we can do is take the reciprocal of the under 3.5 price to work out the over 3.5 price. We can't actually, well, we could, but you could look at over 3.5, but you've got a lot of goals to do there. You've got three, exactly four, sorry, exactly five, exactly six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Where do you stop? I mean, I know there's not going to be 100 goals in the game, but actually there's infinitive goal, infinity goals that could happen after 3.5. Whereas if you look at the under, there can only be 0, 1, 2, or 3, and you can take the reciprocal of 0, 1, 2, and 3 to get the over. Um, if you plot 3.54 xg into a Poisson calculator, now Poisson is a very good distribution. It's not exact for goals in a match because you have bias for nil-nil. But look, let's just keep things simple because it is giving us a distribution. Um, uh, if you plot a distribution graph with exactly three goals on a Poisson distribution, and you can do this from equals Poisson.disc bracket target, which is three, comma, mean, which is 3.54, comma, true bracket, it will tell you that there's a 21.45% chance of there being exactly three goals. There's an 18.18% chance of there being two goals. So there's a slightly less chance of there being two goals even less of exactly one goal, which is 10.27, and only 2.9% of the time, one in 30, will there be zero goals, nil-nil. 3.54, it's a high expectancy in a game, so there's a low um, chance of there being nil-nil, all the way down at 30 to 1. Now add those up, 0, 1, 2, and 3. You get 53%. So just... More often than not, you will have zero, one, two, or three goals when the XG is 3.54. Meaning the reverse has to be true. 47% of the time, you will have four, five, six, seven, all the way up to infinity goals. 47% happens to be one divided by 0.47 is 2.12, which was the odds of over 3.5 in the exchange. So why was the odds of over 3.5 on the exchange? Because people were using the expectancy of 3.54, plugging it into a Poisson calculator, and they were seeing that over 3.5 was 47%, 2.12. So it's because, the, to answer your question, it's not because you've got to look at the exact 2.5 line, 3.5 line, and say anything over an expectancy of 2.5 has to be odds on. No, you have to look at the frequency, the distribution of exactly two goals, exactly one goals, exactly zero goals, and add those together. And take into account that with an expectancy of 3.54, the most common in terms of mode, the most common 
Number of goals in that game is going to be three. The second question that comes in is about horse racing, very much the bread and butter. Uh, a lot of people just exclusively do horse racing, uh, bookie bashing. That's a bit like having a bow and arrow and just one arrow in the set, I think. But it is the thing with the highest amount of volume, which makes it easier to climb through variants. How does it work? It's because we're taking advantage of the benefit that we have in this country of fixed each way pricing, where the bookmakers are pricing the place. Uh, probability they have to at one quarter or one fifth of the win in an each way bet and in real life there is no linear relationship between the win and the place probabilities and therefore that's exploitable and so on our tracker we have loads of different horses uh many of them are negative ev but quite a lot of them are positive ev because essentially the probability that they're going to finish in the places is lower than the probability we're getting from the place component of the each way bet even taking account of the fact that the win component of the bet has a bit of negative expectancy built into that so we're getting lots of value from just the fact that bookmakers madly price up at one quarter one fifth odds when pricing each way and grant says i am tracking each ev on horse singles um, if it is 150% rating on a £10 total stake, that's £5 each way, I get it as £5 EV, and that's fair enough. So £10 down, you're getting 150% rating, so that's 50% ROI on your investment. £10 down, £5 EV makes sense, right? Now, he says he's done 2,500 stakes on... 250 each way singles and has logged ev of 650 pounds but he's been looking at the results are on bookie bashing and he sees that an average return of five percent which would theoretically mean the ev should be 125 pounds so why is his ev so much higher than the bookie bashing roi so here's the, here well here's the reason Nobody that's betting on horses, I hope, is getting an ROI of 5%. Um, that's because of, well, a multitude of different factors. We have to publish an ROI of, 50, of 5% because we have to work by more strict rules in our record, results recording than anyone else does. If I look at the racing tracker now, if I, I'm just actually doing that, let's go to the horse racing tracker. And it's just loading for me. I think I've got Skybet as the last bookmaker that I was looking at on here. I see maybe, I don't know, 30 plus EV horses. The first one that jumps out is Porfan at 122% EV. Corrigan Rock at 122%. One Nation at 120%. And all the ones at the top are 120, 118. And if I went on to this now, I would probably take the top 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 horses, which are all above 110% EV, because I've got a lot of choice. But that's just 12 horses. If I scroll down, there's another 18 horses, and the majority of them are like 100.5, 100.8, 100.9, 100.9, 101. Now, if there's thin value in the day, I might take those, but I'm not going to go as far as taking those today. I don't have to. I'm spoiled for choice. 
if you look at, um, uh, what did I do? I did a little graph about this this morning. If you look at the 55,000 horses we have logged in the last couple of years at Bucky Bashing, about 55% of those, so, you know, 25,000 horses of the 55,000 horses were 100 to 105% thin EV. Are the 100% EVs plus EV all the time? Well, you're getting to a point that when something's 100.1% EV, you start having to bring in questions over the accuracy of the EV calculation. I tend to find that we, perp well, we did purposefully go into bookie bashing trying to make things calculated pessimistically so that if we did pick up the 100.1s, we would still be making a profit. But it still is a matter of fact that the majority of horses, over one in two of the horses that are on the trackers are 100 to 105% EV. And putting them into singles, we're simply going to get, you know, 1% to 5% ROI out of those. But I could choose to just bet on the 110% ratings or higher. In fact, I probably would do that. So that would mean that the ROI of our horses is 10, 15%. Why don't we just report on that? Well, we can't be going around telling everyone that the 102% horse is a good horse and not log the result on it. So we have to be very harsh on our reporting of our own EV. Um, again, I think find anyone with a sample size of over 5,000 horses that uses no sort of odds filtering or anything like that and see if they can come up with an ROI on horse racing that is better than five, six, seven percent. You know, I know that there's some um, tipsters out there that tip very high odds horses and they will have very high ROIs. Two things there at high odds, they have to have extremely high a lot higher sample sizes than at lower odds to overcome variance. And then secondly, there is a quirk of mathematics within value betting that the higher EV you bet at and the higher, well, obviously the higher EV, but I didn't mean the higher odds that you bet at, the higher ROI is going to be if you're betting on positive expectation bets, right? So higher odds... Horses, golfers, and everything like that tend to have higher ROI anyway, and sample sizes need to be bigger. So if you just limited yourself to betting on higher odds horses, you would have an ROI that was higher than 5%. If you limited yourself to higher EV horses, then you would have an ROI that was higher than 5%. If you did both of these things, then you would have an ROI much higher than 5%. I tend to find the average ROI from people using the tracker and applying some sort of common sense filtering tends to be around 20% on singles. And then you have the compounding factor of putting these things in multiples. You see, if you put them just in singles, you'll get 5%. But all you have to do is start placing doubles instead of singles and you jump from 5% to over 20%. Trebles over 40%. Lucky 15s will be over 20%, but with a nice little um, sort of smoothing of the variance and everything like that. So in the placing of multiples, you're taking water, turning it into wine. You're taking 105%, multiplying it by 105%, 
getting more than 110%. And I find as well, most people do place multiples because singles are indicative of smart betters, multiples uh, show you off to be a little bit more recreational. I mean, not exclusively, but make us still know that sharp customers place um, multiples, but you've now at least escaped maybe the tag of being an arbitrage player, which is, you know, the overwhelming part of the Venn diagram that profitable customers fall into and to, from a bookmaker's perspective. Um, we had a look at just betting at over um, 100% EV and the ROI was 5.2%. As soon as you're betting at over 110%, the ROI was in the 20s. As soon as you're betting at 130%, okay, you know, you're, you're, you're now betting only one in... 40 horses that are on the tracker, but your ROI was at 80%, right? So there is real tangible benefit in being selective from the tracker. You'll still be profitable at the 100% and more, but start filtering at 105, 110, and you do find that you are, your ROI is growing as the EV estimation grows, which gives some sort of confidence that the EV estimation is fairly, you know, on point. So that's the answer to the first question about horse racing is why is why does this chap have higher than a 5% ROI? And then the second one, I just like sharing this, of course, you never see this on the forums and we understand why. You know, you occasionally see it on the forums and then it's deleted very soon after because someone's been asked, do not share the positivity and the big wins because of the tragedy of the commons. But this came through. Um, hi, Tom. Um, I just wanted to say, following my previous message to you, that I landed an £8,000 lucky 15 this week. I was one horse off £220,000. I had a win, a win, a win, and a place with a £15 stake. I have been one horse off the, the, the £200,000 or more return a number of times. In fact, I've been a second place twice. <laughs> it, 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 it is mad trying to sort of wait and see all these fall in. He, this person kindly shares a little bit of help through what he's learned filtering the horses from the horse racing tracker. I personally believe people should be getting on lucky 15 bets as early as possible. Um, I mean, I wouldn't put off people getting on later in the day, but there seems to be bigger value earlier in the day. I've pre previously followed tipsters and they generally issue bets between eight and 10 in the morning for racing. So that seems like a good window. Indeed, I've observed tipsters tipping a horse and seen it then appear on the tracker. And this is something common amongst all of our trackers. Um, as smart money comes in, the trackers are designed not on purpose. It was an accident, but it was a nice accident to see come to fruition that across golf coupons, well, we knew about coupons, but golf coupons, horse racing, the bet tracker, as smart money comes in, as tips to start to tip holes, these horses, money drives the price down on the exchanges. They rise up an EV on our trackers, so we get to benefit that, you know, smarter money is highlighting horses, golfers, bets on trackers more so than dumb money where prices are drifting. I also think Irish racing is great for finding horses that might crash in price. Um, 
I know in the smart betting club analysis, they imply through their study that Irish races aren't great to back. And there's certainly some indicative um, information that would suggest that you may get restricted a little bit quicker betting on Irish racing than just exclusively on UK racing. Um, But the person with the feedback thinks that this is because they're testing the horse racing tracker at 11 a.m., whereas I think you want to be on a lot earlier. I've had horses go from 33 to 1 to 10 to 3 to 1. Obviously, that this results in losing various online accounts. Um, so I tend to back Irish racing in shops rather than online. Um, I'm by no means a maths whiz, but this is more based on observation. I think observation, observational use of the trackers is actually as legitimate, if not perhaps more than just exclusively looking at the underpinning mathematics that run these things. So um, this is really, really useful information. Um, Something that I've actually taken on board and suggested with my runners as well. Um, That, you know, getting on earlier and Irish racing, especially before 11am, seems to be having some success so going back also to the estimation of ev and why people are getting um getting more return than what we have on the tracker we don't look at best odds guarantee and we don't look at concessions from lucky 15 that you may be picking up in shop it would be foolish to do that i think any tipster that either tips at top price or um includes best odds guaranteed in the results is an absolute sham. At the same time, we don't have a calculation for um, the rule for deductions following a withdrawal from a race simply because we've got 55,000 bloody horses on, in the results. Do you know how, seriously, do you know how long it would go take to go through every horse, find out when it was recorded, look at the difference between then and the start of the race, find out if any horses were withdrawn, what time they were withdrawn at back. It would just, it's not impossible, but it would take so long to prove what. We do know it's working and we do know we're underestimating EV. So it wouldn't prove anything and it's not a, a, a good help the time. Um, in terms of um, moving forward as an advantage player, as I say, having just one bow in your arrow. Um, isn't probably a sensible thing to do, especially if things may change moving forward. You don't want to be too used to it. And you don't want to be one of those people that come along, smash a load of lucky 15s on your online accounts, lose them, and then just give up at that point. If you're doing the lucky 15s, there has to be a, a high number of recreational type bets in there, be them the same game in parlays, like the requester bets, the combo bets, the your odds and stuff like that, or even just blind negative EV multiples mixed in with the horse racing ones. It doesn't mean that you're definitely going to keep your account, but it should give it a little bit more longevity than opening up a sky bet, smashing five horse racing lucky 15s, and then, you know, waving goodbye to it when the limits have dropped to such that you can't even place the minimum bet that they want to accept. uh, The game really is about um, keeping this opportunity going as long as possible. If it is, if you do have a number of bows in 
your arrow, or the way around, number of arrows along with your bow. This will certainly be the biggest one, the one that's likely to get the biggest kill, and the one that you want to be focusing on the logistics of placing as many as possible, churning them out, churning them out, churning them out, whilst at the same time, you know, almost having it as the background machinery operating as normal as you go around and explore all the other edges that are available to you with or without any of the tools and trackers and help that are available at bookiebashing.net. <laughs> Twitch, if you, if you didn't know, is an American video live streaming service that focuses on video game live streaming, including broadcasts of esports competitions, um, uh, music broadcasts, creative content, and in real life streams. It is operated by Twitch Interactive, which is a subsidiary of Amazon.com. Um, uh, it's very popular with the kids. If you've never seen this, um, it's quite good for... I I quite like watching it for, you know, good poker players who will play maybe a poker tournament on Twitch with a delay. Um, and then they give you a little bit of insight into their decision-making and so you can sort of compare and contrast what you would do with what they do. That's pretty much all I've really ever um, watched it for. I'm not too into watching other people play computer games but whatever if, if that's what people enjoy then no harm to them but there's been a lot of controversy on twitch recently especially when it comes to gambling so uh, gambling can be broadly sort of split into a few different categories as we know you have positive expectation and negative expectation gambling but it's not always as clear cut. You see, positive expectation gambling could, you could argue, could be poker because it's a skill game. But look how many people are winning at poker long term. The overwhelming majority in a net zero sum game have to be losers. Otherwise, how are the winners and how are the poker sites paying rake and administration and so on and so forth? What about slots? Well, of course, just a slot on its own or a table game on its own has a house edge built into it. But what if you're using a bonus? Does that become positive expectation? What about sports betting? A random sports bet on its own will be negative expectation. But what if you've been selective? So there are different types of gambling and different levels of responsibility that come with it. But the Twitch that I've been exposed to has generally been long-term winning poker players um, talking through their decision-making in poker tournaments. Now, Joe is a 32-year-old full-time Twitch streamer who lives in Canada and has always loved gambling. So, you know, the other thing about Twitch is people can make decent livings out of them. I don't quite understand the um, economics behind exactly how people are full-time and where the income is coming from, but that's maybe by the by. From the beginning, Joe was aware 
that the house always wins, but he saw gambling as a social activity. The casino was a place to go with your buddies where you could smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol. What's cooler than being with your friends at 19, getting blackjack at a table and saying, I won some bucks, let's go for a fucking drink, he says. But Joe who streams under the name Hey, It's Joe to 49,300 followers never liked slot machines. Um, in fact, he found them repulsive. Slots, to me, are a geriatrics game, said Joe, who grew up in New York. You've got to be old and stinky and sitting in a casino for 12 hours covered in your own piss to play. I would never, ever, ever want to play a slot machine. That shit was boring as fuck, and it was a scam. In recent years, however... Joe has had something of a change of heart about slots. He'd noticed the rising popularity of gambling streams on Twitch and spied an opportunity. There were a lot of dry personalities and people fist-pumping with techno music pounding and shit, going, fucking sign up under our affiliate code and get paid money today, says Joe. I wondered if anyone would watch me do this, and I tried it out. This is back in 2020. And the next thing you know... I got a sponsor, he says. During his six-hour streams, Joe plays a multitude of colourful animated slot games that seem to spin on endlessly as he blasts rock music, cracks dark jokes and has meandering conversations with fans. Twitch's slot category has nearly one million followers. Every hour, tens of thousands of viewers tune in to watch streamers play virtual slot machines via online cryptocurrency casinos. The category, which is dominated by foreign streamers due to a US ban on online crypto casinos, has come under fire in recent months. Critics say that the streamers, with their seemingly endless supplies of cash, create an unrealistic depiction of gambling and normalize reckless gambling behavior through their hours-long streams. But influencers in the space feel they're misunderstood. For one, they say it's not as lucrative as it might seem. Christian, a 29-year-old slot streamer and CGI artist from Latvia with 7,400 followers who streams under the name Casino Cipher, initially self-funded his gambling with money he earned from an investment in the cryptocurrency Solana. I've put in roughly 40 to 50 thousand euros in six months he says christian who spent six months sorry six years working as a digital blackjack dealer and gambling host for a latvian virtual casino has since entered into sponsored partnership with online casinos to share affiliate links on discord twitch banned the use of gambling related affiliates links last august and streamers used discord to circumnavigate this ban He's not yet making a profit, though, but there's the potential at some point that I might start to break even, he says. Um, Joe says most viewers are more interested in watching slots than they are in playing it, and thus don't bother clicking through the affiliate links. I used an affiliate code for months, and I signed up like 30 people, he says. The sponsor was losing money hand over fist on me. Now he has a different kind of deal that's common on Twitch. He is paid a salary by his sponsor, which he gambles himself. The money being won or lost is real. But if you're paid by your sponsor and you go into their website and you gamble, then is it ever real money? Critics 
have raised concerns about the impact gambling streams could have on young people as Twitch is used by children as young as 13. Christian worries about minors entering his stream but says he's pretty much powerless to prevent it. Twitch is accessible to anybody, right? There's no age restrictions, he says. The only way for me to warn viewers is by putting up a sticker that it's an 18 plus stream. That's kind of a problem. Joe shares these concerns and is frustrated by Twitch's screening process, which requires two-factor verification but doesn't confirm a user's age. I would love an 18-plus verification, he says, but the only thing I can do is request phone numbers and emails. Although Joe is adamant his viewers are mostly bold men in their 30s, he admits his... <laughs> bold men in their 30s? What is it with people about... <laughs> Why? I don't see people in their 30s as being bold. Do people in their 20s think that you go bold in your 30s? There's another thing as well recently. I've seen a lot of people my age tweeting about, what is it about getting into your 40s and feeling like this when you get out of bed in the morning? Guess what? The answer is you're eating shit, you're drinking too much, and you're most importantly not exercising and picking up a barbell. Go and do some strength training. Go and work on your grip. Go and hang off a bar. If you can't hang off a bar, hang off some ring rows and work your way up to the bar. Learn how to kip. Learn how to lift up a barbell, squat more, go and join some of these classes that do these things, and you will feel better in your 40s than you did do ever in your 30s, because I'm presuming you didn't do this in your 30s. The problem isn't getting old. The problem is you sit too much. And you don't move enough. That's the problem. Anyway, and I, I don't have any answer about people going bald in the 30s. It's not something that I was aware of. Um... Joe admits his 14-year-old cousin once snuck into his stream. Any time anyone's underage, it's a ban, and we never unban them, says Joe. That goes for his teenage cousin too, but it's like, what the fuck are you doing over here anyways? Where's your parents? Who let you have the iPad today? Controversies aside, slot streamers believe they provide valuable and relatable entertainment for their followers. Slots are entertaining because people are invested in the streamer. They like to see someone's balance go up and down because they find it captivating, says Kion, a 28-year-old former bachelorette party performer and social media manager from Toronto who streams to 4,900 followers under the name Henny Entertainment. It's an emotional thing. Joe says his audience craves novelty and fun. A lot of people are looking to be entertained because, to be honest with you, television sucks, he says. He still thinks slots are boring as fuck, but argues that viewers are drawn to the personality of the gambler rather than the games hit themselves. He credits his own success to his sick sense of humour, lots of mum jokes, his good taste in music... 90s alt rock and the rapport he has with his followers when someone's had a bad day i send them good vibes kion agrees with joe's assertion that when it comes to gambling streams the slots are secondary we all play games like scribble and pictionary kion says of his crew a tight-knit group of mostly young men we have a movie night in discord it's like a group of friends where we all hang out that's like a utopian discord that i can only dream about kioni feels his stream has provided welcome stimulation during the pandemic. The schedule of my streams is set and I think people look forward to it, he says. It's really helping them get through quiet times. Kion and his followers have plans to travel to Tokyo, Las Vegas and Amsterdam. According to Joe, there's a l another large audience for these streams. 
problem gamblers trying to kick their addiction by living vicariously through streamers. I get messages from people who say they don't gamble anymore because they watch me and other slot streamers all the time, says Joe, who adds that he gambles within his means and reminds viewers regularly that gambling is a losing pursuit. And I 100% agree with this. I bet, I really believe that there is. I believe that there's people out there who are addicted to the spinning of the slot and I think if they can go and watch other people do it in real time, not on a recorded video, that that would bring them a tangible benefit and sort of feed that monster. Kion says, supporting problem gamblers is the most rewarding part of the job. If I can help someone steer away from a bad path and create a fun zone where they still get adrenaline and excitement from being a viewer, that's pretty cool. I mean, I used to watch um, uh, you British streamer he was on youtube not twitch called the bandit and i thought he was funny and i enjoyed his ups and downs and i've never been huge into slots although i've played them on the positive equity side of things a little bit of time ago i no longer do that anymore uh and um i i i get the bit where people who have problems or have some sort of relatability or maybe some addiction to those slots can get a little bit of reward and peace and morphine and a hit from watching these streamers go through the ups and downs of their streams. I believe them here. I think this is a real fair point. Joe realises that a fair amount of his views are in it for the schadenfreude. There are some people who want to see me win, but there's way more people who want to see me lose, says Joe, who was down $3,000 after several hours of on-screen stream gambling prior to his in interview. Maybe they want to see someone lose because it makes them feel better, he says. And if that helps people, fuck it. Let them feel helped, you know? So that was an interview with this Joe guy um, from a few months ago. A lot has changed that was from january a lot has changed recently twitch has been very much in the headlines so much so that the other day they released um this announcement gambling content on twitch has been a big topic of discussion in the community and something we've been actively reviewing since our last policy update in the area today we want to update you on our plans while we prohibit sharing links or referral codes which is good you know, you don't, that's really kind of fishing people out to, um, to, to sort of, you know, make the affiliate link people richer. But you, it, it, there's kind of like, that's not a fair playing field that they were playing on when you're playing slots and sharing affiliate links. So it's good that those are prohibited. Whilst we prohibit sharing links and referral codes to all sites that include slots, roulette or dice games, we've seen some people circumnavigate those rules and expose our community to potential harm. So we'll be making a policy update on October the 18th to prohibit streaming of gambling sites that include slots, roulette or dice games that aren't licensed either in the US or other jurisdictions that provide sufficient consumer protection. These sites will include stake.com, rollbit.com, jewelbits.com, and rubet.com. However, we may identify others as we move forward. We will continue to allow websites that focus on sports betting, fantasy sports, and poker. We'll share specifics on the updates to our gambling policy soon, including the full policy language to make sure everyone is clear on our new rules. 
that take effect uh, on October the 18th. So they're really going after the kind of slots players here. Um, the scandal that's been generated on Twitch has really come about from recent controversy involving a streamer called Silka. Silka is a slots player and he is accused of scamming fellow streamers out of hundreds of thousands of dollars to support his gambling habits. And this is an area of, you know, this is why we can't have nice things. The scandal led to some of the platform's biggest streamers to call for a ban on gambling streams, of which there are hundreds on Twitch that bring in tens of thousands of views at any one time. But it left many poker streamers uncertain about their livelihoods. Um, so that announcement from Twitch at least separates out sports betting and poker betting from slots betting. Um, the conversation about gambling streams on Twitch started when prominent streamers, including Hassan Abi, Mizkiv, and Pokimani, called out Silka, who played on the Hustler Casino live streams, for scamming them and others out of money that he borrowed and used to gamble. According to tech outlet The Verge, Silka used well-known financial scamming strategies, claiming that his bank account has been frozen and that he needs funds to pay bills and otherwise stay afloat until his bank would release the funds. Sympathetic streamers then sent him large amounts of money with the expectation they would be paid back, but it would take months or sometimes years for the money to be repaid if it did at all. And there's some screenshots here from Silka. Let's have a look at these, see if I can bring them up. Um, of him. So he comes on to, obviously, some Discord channel. He says... Um, Yo, you still at my at this place? Um, by the way, bro, if it's fine, I have to ask a fave. My bank got locked on me, bro, and I'm fucked. My PayPal has six dollars. I get access when I'm back because the dog shits want me to call, and I can't. It's very expensive, and he provides a video here of him being locked out of his bank account. If I asked it, it if I could borrow. Would it be okay? I and I got you when I'm back. DW King, you can say no. Keep it personal as well, because I'm embarrassed. I'm asking, sorry. I recorded they because they won't allow screenshots of the app. $1,000 okay? So there he's asking for $1,000. Um, he says, send it to the PayPal something 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 at gmail.com um i mean i'd love it in gbp or the great british pounds that is or is that going too far it would mean a lot heart 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 thank you very much heart 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 and then a few months later you see this um yo silka you good to get me back had to delete my messages on discord he says what's your paypal so this person provides his paypal and um silka provides a um screenshot of him is paypal sending the money back saying i appreciate you king and the guy a few weeks later now says not sure what happened but whenever you can look into it i'd appreciate it no rush on paying me but i'd appreciate it because the paypal didn't go through 
Silk says, what the fuck? Shit got taken out of my account. And that's where he's basically going to say he's not going to be paying this £1,000 back because it got paid out to the account. And then there's another person showing that they got scammed for £1,000 and another person showing that they got scammed for £1,000 and loads of Twitchers come forward saying that they got scammed for £1,000. So there's two different arguments going on here. You know, first of all, you've got the problem with people watching Twitch streams and someone thinks perhaps they're watching things that are unattainable. I know that people, there was some suspicion that people were gambling with fake money. And certainly I've seen some like balances in the millions of pounds, people playing like $100 or £100 spins on high variance games like Dead or Alive or um, um, Danger High Voltage or something like that. And you're like, can that be real? Are they playing with play money there? Or or do they just have dad's investment fund that they're just burning through? You know what I mean? Um, uh, and then the second thing is that it looks like this Silker guy has just been going around asking everybody to lend him £1,000 and not paying it back. Many of Silker's victims came forward on Twitch, like streamer Lucafan, admitting he'd lost $27,000 and train wrecked. TV saying he gave Silka $45,000. Um, XQC remarked that he had also been hit up for money, um, but he didn't loan him any. A tearful Silka, or Slicker, or however you pronounce him, took to Twitch on September the 17th, five days ago, admitting that he borrowed the money from streamers and lied to many people. According to Slicker, his addiction started with CSGO, Counter-Strike, something, something, skin betting. Don't ask me what that is. I don't know. Eventually, I found out you could gamble with money. He explained from there he used the money he earned from streaming to support his sports betting habit, but that income wasn't enough. He began to ask around for money, lying about the reason he needed the funds whilst saying he had every intention of paying people back. Hassan Abi, the popular political and variety streamer, got involved by staging a call between himself, Slyker, and another content creator, Mizkif, in which he tried to seek restitution for the scammed streamers. Slyker seemed reluctant when asked if he would seek therapy, and Mizkif stated that he and other top-earning streamers, including XQC and Ludwig, would use their wealth to repay Slyker's victims. Although Slyker's particular flavour of addiction was sports betting, the incident touched off a conversation about gambling on Twitch's platform. Currently, slot streams are permitted on Twitch. This article was before Twitch made that announcement. Um, but after the news about Slyker broke, high-profile streamers, including including Pokemon, discussed a boycott of Twitch on stream to spur the platform to ban gambling from their site. Ironically, the sentiment spun off its own controversy. Marginalised content creators were quick to point out that some of the same streamers talking about the damage of gambling streams to the site and the community remained silent when asked for their support to boycott Twitter, Twitch sorry, in the face of prolific and violent hate raids last year. So, um, what to me, it seemed utterly like it's um, the slot streams served a purpose. And I have no problem with um, legitimate and real slot streams being used as a form of entertainment, especially since they seem to be able to provide a service for perhaps problem gamblers. And maybe there was an element of 
some of these slop streams weren't real or they were just maybe something they were pretending to be something that they were not you have that as an issue if you're deceiving people i'd hope to think that i could see something like that in the middle the minute that i kind of second guess that there is something that doesn't seem right i have the ability to step back and sort of not read too much into it but then i'm not some 50 15 year old who's completely and utterly able to be influenced by these guys and impressionable so there is an element of having to walk at the speed of the slowest person in your group and then you've got this guy Sliker who's out and out scamming people and it seems like Twitch are now moving in a direction where they're taking a real different stance on gambling and the good news for most positive expectation players is that they seem to definitely be making a differentiation on poker and sports betting and so those two forms of betting will be able to continue at least for the near future until somebody else screws it up for everybody Bet365 have a concession here. A little bit like their um, two-up concession in football. It's an NFL early payout offer. Uh, get your single bet paid out if the team you back goes 17 points ahead. So seven, five points for a touchdown, two points for a conversion, which is mostly meaningless in NFL. So it's generally seven points for a touchdown. Um this is for um, how it works. Place a pre-game bet on the money line or the match result market for any game in the NFL. Up to and including Super Bowl LVII, which is uh, 57 in mon real money. For single bets, if the team you back goes 17 points ahead at any stage during the game, we will pay you out in full regardless of whether the opposition come back to win the game for multiple bets and bet builder bets if your team you backed goes 17 points ahead this selection will be marked as one within my bets with the remaining selections left to run um we've been asked to um build a um early payout tracker for nfl and we decided against it the reason being um this used to be 14 up so you know two touchdowns with the conversions um, and in 2019, I looked at the figures from 20, the season of 2018, or 2018, 2019, if you like. The trigger rate was 6.9% at 14 up. And at 17 up, it was a third of that, 2.25%. Only six games of 267 matches saw a 17 point turnaround in nfl um and this was um so small that the edge was pretty much eroded especially when it comes to like um account longevity and things like that and um it just didn't seem like something that was worth it it's not quite as good uh it's, it's half as good if you like as the um two up offer in football in terms of you know the number of times it could be expected to trigger 
Step forward, DraftKings and the infant USA sports betting market. DraftKings offered the early payout offer, but it wasn't 17 up and it wasn't 14 up. DraftKings were going to pay out as a winner if the team went 10 points up. 10 points up. That's one touchdown with a conversion and then a field goal. I mean, me and my son could go 10 points up against the New York Giants this season. Um, Which genius ran the cost-benefit analysis and the liabilities risk on that promotion. Um, At 17 up, you're looking at about a trigger rate of 2%. At 14 up, you're looking at a trigger rate of 7%. At 10 up, you're looking at a trigger rate of about 18%. Just short shy of one in five matches across 267 matches. So instead of like six turn... um, payouts as it was with the Bet365 offer in a season, you're going to be looking at like 60. I mean, which genius? Well, we are two weeks into the season on the 21st of September, which was yesterday. DraftKings announced that it will halt its NFL Up 10 early win promotion after paying out a total of $75 million over the season's first two weeks. Oh my God, they were up for over half a billion across the season. Ah, how can you just casually be at risk for half a billion dollars over half a season? The promotion will, however, continue as an up seven early win feature for Thursday night football between the Steelers and the Browns. Um, so it's like um, the, they've, they've chosen just to do it for one game in a week as opposed to in 16. Um, it's unclear if the change is permanent. There's still an outside chance the sportsbook will bring back the up 10 early win promo for week four, nor is it clear um, as of Tuesday whether an early win promotion for Thursday night football will continue week to week. The promotions allowed bettors to cash in on their money line wages if the team they bet on went up by seven or ten points at any point in the game. Which team, by the way, find me an NFL game where a team doesn't go seven points up at any point. I mean, that's a touchdown that's been converted. What's the conversion got these days? 99.99999%? The money line cashed normally too if the team you wagered on won, but your team never went up 7 or 10 points. Opt-in was required and the promo only applied to straight money line bets. The up 7 point promo was only used for Thursday night footballs. Wagers on the bills at minus 130 in week one cashed early in the first quarter. Of course they did, because that's a single touchdown that's been converted. Um, whilst bets on the Rams plus 110 lost altogether. Bets on both the Chargers and the Chiefs would have won in week two. So they, they're just paying out on both teams each week. I mean, of course, the team that scores first has to go on not to win, but that's it's not, it's, it, it, it's not that far off a coin flick, especially if it happens. The underdogs go up early. That just means that they got possession early and scored the touchdown. They're still likely to be underdogs even after getting that first touchdown. 
The Up 10 early win promo was used exclusively for Sunday or Monday games. Week 2's contest, Titans versus Bills and Vikings versus Eagles were not eligible. But the max wager had been as high as $500. $500 max wager for VIP accounts and those with diamond status at the sportsbooks. Most accounts saw a max bet of $50 or $100, but maximum wages ranged everywhere in between depending on how much you can normally bet with the book. Our beat writer following this promotion, this is from the Action Network, made picks for weeks one and two. Had you tailed all of his picks as a $500 max better, you'd be up $5,750 in net profit for two days' work. A $100 better would be up $1,150 for 2,900 risk. That's an ROI of 39% on Moneyline. The general principle was to bet on the underdogs. The worse a team was, the more positive expected value this promotion provided. DraftKings um, ran a similar promotion for the NBA Finals, which guaranteed bettors a win as long as the team they bet on took a lead of drink 10 or more points at any stage in the game. The $75 million figure for how much the sportsbook paid out as a result of the promotion only factors in teams that went up 7 or 10 points. It doesn't count, for example, bets on the Dolphins or Cardinals who overcame 21 and 16-point fourth-quarter deficits to win on Sunday. Whilst neither team led by 10, meaning the promotion didn't apply, more bettors put wages on the two teams because of the early win assurance. So, like... People are still betting these underdogs, even though the 10 point wasn't overhauled, they're still getting killed on them because they're taking more bets than they ordinarily would have. Um, DraftKings declined to provide specific profit and loss figures or data on how substantially han- uh, or how substantially handle increased year over year as a result of these promotions. <sighs> Give me one week in America with some of these sports books and I'm then having a 51-week holiday for the rest of the year. The opportunities available to everybody with sports betting accounts on the other side of the pond must simply be outrageous. And you don't even need to be that clever. You just need to have your eyes open. Ten up. What a bunch of Muppets. Okay, another another question. This one came in over the summer, and this was uh, to do with Player XG, my favourite tool. Um, the Player XG tool is a tool we're just taking slowly with. We've got it um, up in live. Um, the first version, the next version is going to be fantastic, but it's still good as it is. This person writes, um, "What is your confidence with the first goal scorer in relation to the Player XG tool?" I find your Player XG tool overestimates first goal scorer when compared to Betfair Sportsbook. I'm not convinced that 2 plus 3 plus follows Poisson. Nearly all 2 plus are lower, and I'm not convinced it's just recreational money. Okay, so first of all, um, whilst that's a question, I think it's more of a statement. Um, This person says, what's your confidence, and then goes on to tell us that he thinks that it's wrong. Um... Also, this was written at 3.30 in the morning. I don't know if that means anything. (laughs) Um, So, 
it's okay just to completely dismiss something if you don't um, if you don't fundamentally agree with it. One of the things with the tools and trackers on bookie bashing is when we track results, we tend to find that we are pretty much always in profit. And then we've got a lot of other things going on really with the same logic, but a lot of it we don't track the results of for logistical reasons or because we're letting people use them themselves. And so when there are no results to point to, it's very easy to go, uh, well, I believe that it's wrong. And that's okay if you do. What we provide these things for is the really decision support tools. That means that they should help you come to a decision. And if your decision is that you don't get any confidence from the tools, then by all means, do not use them, right? But what really they are, especially the Player XG tool, as is everything else, is we're only just taking data that's already out there. And if you like rehashing it or using it to come up with secondary and tertiary mathematics principles and markets. So it, it, it is simply, there is information out there that says this, and we can use it to work out that, right? So in terms of the confidence of a model that's like this, the confidence is, it's as good as the data that goes into it. So because it is live and working with real data, the answer is that we have full confidence and let me explain why the player xg tool starts with an input and the input is the anytime goal scorer price what is the anytime goal scorer price that is fair for a player well you can use the exchange traded price now that before team news carries with it some sort of risk that the player is not going to start and he's going to come on as a substitute right after team news, we know this. And so what we, you, you will find is players that were not certain to start will crash down in price. And players that were kind of more certain to start will stay roughly static. Before anything is traded on the exchange, we have top price from the market. Now, with a live tool, one of a couple of things can be happening, such as happened today. Um, a market went up that the anytime goal scorer price for uh um who was it was it it wasn't Haaland. it was someone in the belgian team give me someone in the belgian team let me look down them oh it wasn't kevin de bruyne eden hazard it said that the um someone had got incorrectly a site website had incorrectly gone up with eden hazard at 66 to 1 right and so 66 to 1 is the equivalent player XG of about 0.05 goals. Now, that's simply because the website published the wrong price. You would never have been paid out at 66 to 1 on Hazard to get a goal in that match. But because we have a live tool, it picked up the wrong price. So what's the confidence there? Well, what we have to understand is if I'm using 0.05 XG for Hazard in this game, I have to understand where it's come from and why it's come to that. So if I'm picking it, I could probably go out and maybe find an error, but that doesn't mean that the tool's wrong. 
it means that we use this as a decision support tool and we have to paint a bigger picture. Now what are we doing after we pick up AGS? We're using a reverse Poisson distribution to which we kind of answered this in the previous podcast, but we have been asked, is a Poisson distribution uh, a suitable um, um, model for anytime goal scoring? Now you can look at this a number of different ways. Um, you can plot historically goals scored and the fit is very outrageous. It's very, very good. If you want to go backwards to how anytime goal scorer prices are applied to a team, what the traders do, and I sat down with representatives, two representatives from a firm that supplies most bookmakers with anytime goal scorer odds, and they do this via a methodology from Player XG. The three of us went to a pub in uh, July, I think, and um, we sat down and we had dinner. Um, I need to actually repay the dinner because at the end of it, I'd had a few drinks and I didn't mean for them to buy me dinner. I think they were just being kind, but you know, like you get to the end of dinner and someone says, I'll pay, and you don't put up enough of a fight. Like the Father Ted, <laughs> the top, the Father Ted episode, where they're arguing about who's going to pay the bill, Mrs. Doyle, over and over, and it gets more and more violent. I did the opposite of that. I fully expected to pay for my own food. I got to the end of the bill. The guy offered to pay. The trader offered to pay, and I didn't put up enough of a fight. And actually, afterwards, I felt a little bit shameful about that. Also, got uh, some food poisoning from the buffalo chicken. Anyway, regardless, right? From my understanding is what you do is you have the, this company employs people that watches games, that they, they watch the Bundesliga 2, the La Liga 2, and really a lot of goal scorer edges are in these secondary division matches and things like that, right? But what they do is they watch these and they look out for particular players who are playing surprisingly well, getting chances, getting goals, and they will assign a dominance or a power factor to each of these players that is above and beyond what would be expected of a player in that position. Every position starts at 100% and you might say Ronaldo has a 20% advantage over most players that play in that position or Virgil van Dijk or has a 50% advantage for getting goals over most people in his centre-back position and then there's some players that um, underperform um, and so these guys at this firm watch all these matches and for everyone even a little kid that comes through the the secondary team and plays a few minutes he's already got a 100% or 110% or 90% rating attached to him in terms for his supremacy For uh, and then you have the expected goals for that team in a match. And we have this. We know tonight, for example, Belgium versus Wales. If I go to the detailed games page, we know that the XG for this match, which is um, a live XG and changes over time as market conditions change, is 3.2. And using um, some sort of um, algorithm that's been built up by regression analysis looking backwards over games we have split that as 2.37 goals for Belgium and 0.83 goals for Wales so we know that Belgium has 2.37 goals now we're looking at the various formations for them let's say it's a 4-4-2 well we would assign 2.37 goals maybe 
30% for the one striker, 25% for the other striker, and then percentages throughout the team with some for the subs as well. And then you say, okay, 30% is going to the um, the forward on the left, 2.30% of 2.37 is 0.75 XG for that position. And now we're going to slot Kevin De Bruyne into that position. Kevin De Bruyne has got 110% rating, so we're going to lift his 0.75 to 0.85 or whatever. And because we've lifted him, we have to take it out from the rest of the team because the sum of the XG of the players in the team has to equal the team XG. And now we've got an XG for all the players. What do they do to project forward? They use a Poisson distribution. Okay, So you can argue that you don't think it's a good fit. That's fine. You don't have to use the player XG decision support tool for all that. I have used a reverse Poisson, and then I do project forward using Poisson to get AGS and 2+, plus and 3+. Plus. Um, and from what I know, the odds compilers out there do this as well for 1+, plus and for 2+. Plus. And I found out that what I suspected for 3+, plus is also true, and that is that 3+, plus doesn't follow a direct Poisson distribution because there's probably something in there about dominance, about... Once a player's got two goals, he's more likely to get three goals kind of a thing going on, right? So in the current version of the player XG model, I do use a Poisson distribution to go from XG to hat-trick or more. In a future iteration, I want to bring those odds down. Just now I'm being pessimistic. It's prob- the, odd, the, the fair odds are pro- probably lower. I just don't know what the relationship is, and so I have nothing to base it on just now. This was always the plan. I was always planning to build a player XG tool first that worked and then do some more work to to sort of hone in and refine the models, starting off as pessimistic and bringing it into an optimistic range, which is why we probably do not find much value in the hat-trick um, market using the player XG tool. So to answer your question about, um, I'm not convinced that 2 plus 3 plus follows Poisson. Well, okay, I actually agree with you that 3 plus doesn't as well. And my plan is to bring it down once I've worked on getting what the uh, relationship is. I haven't done that work yet. 2 plus, I believe, does personally. And I've spoken to people who provide services to bookmakers who also follow that path of thinking. So it's okay if you don't, but I do think that 2 plus follows the Poisson distribution, and I will be continuing forward to move that until I get information from somewhere that suggests that it doesn't. Um, nearly all 2-plus are lower, he says, and I'm not convinced it's just recreational money. The, um, the thing about to score two goals or more is it's such an illiquid market. So let's have a look at it just now. Um, we have Kevin De Bruyne at... 17.89 you can get um 16 on the exchange to back and there's no fair odds um uh, to lay so what does that market tell us nothing zero pounds has been traded um what do we make kevin de bruyne to get two plus 17.05 so i wouldn't back at 16 now the support ticket says um Nearly all 2-plus are lower. Well, yes, they are, because these are, this isn't an efficient market. So in an inefficient market, 
the two plus will be lower. If it was an efficient market, then it should match what, well, not necessarily what we have, because, oh no, it would, yeah, no, in an efficient market, it would match what we have, yeah if they were following the same kind of methodology. Now, our input here is anytime goal scorer. What if the anytime goal scorer is biased? Well, we're going to be biased on two plus. You know what I mean? Um, so again, this comes down to it being a decision support tool, not the be all and end all. It can't possibly capture everything that's going on. Our input is the anytime goal scorer from either bookmaker's top price with um, appropriate markup applied or from the exchanges. And if any of those are slightly skew with because it's something is mispriced at the bookmaker or something is trading strangely on the exchange, then we're going to be skew with our decision support tool means that you've got to sort of interrogate the numbers that are coming out of that and look at it. Generally, are the exchanges in two plus lower than what we have? Yes, that's because it's an inefficient market. The same with three plus. What can we do to um, try and get an edge here? Well, um, I'm following the player XG model here in Belgium versus Wales. The last traded price on Kevin De Bruyne was 3.1. Um, so we can reverse that into an XG of 0.39. Now, this is hours before kickoff, so the 3.1 will include some risk of him not starting, but maybe that's very small. Maybe Kevin De Bruyne's an absolute dead cert to start tonight. But what that does give us is FGS of 8.63, right? First goal score at 8.63 based off the 2.37 goals we have for um, um, uh, for Belgium tonight. What's the highest first goal scorer price for Kevin De Bruyne? Well, um, it is 7.5. So we've got 8.6. And by the way, that kind of ties into the kind of margin you would think you would be getting from a bookmaker. On the exchange, you can um, the last price matched was eight. So if you laid that, that was maybe a little bit of a value bet there. Um, and just now it's very liquid. Now what you might, it's 7.6 to back to 10.5 to lay. Now what you do find on the player first goal scorer market is that when you look at the graph, you will see a wide range of... Um, prices traded um, because of the uncertainty and because of the different models that people are using. So because we know that 8.6 is our fair odds based on the anytime goal scorer, that gives us something to hinge around. And maybe if we could trade up at 10.5 or 10, we've now got ourselves a pretty decent value bet on the exchange. Or if we're looking at the bookmakers, what we tend to find is that um, bookmakers do not change um, their prices for first goal scorer two plus three plus very much because they're trying to get all the information factored in before team news but everything all their eggs into one place and it does mean that if at any time goal scorer price starts to crash down we can have a look at those extra markets and i do like having a look at two plus and three plus let's have a look at the top price for two plus to score two plus goals tonight Eden Hazard, 17, 16 to 1, is available at Betfred and Sky. Our fair odds are 17.05. It's not going to take a lot for that to come in, into a plus EV um, bet. And so what I would maybe do is I would be looking at Belgium versus Wales. I would set up a private tracker now, and I would say, at Skybet, 
and even more importantly, a bet Fred, because I can go there and get bets on in the shop and they're going to match them. I'm going to set um, bet Fred's odds as um, 16 to 1, 17.0. I'm going to load up the player XG tool under advanced calcs and I'm going to say Kevin De Bruyne over one goal in the match. And, I, um, and it's going to tell me just now that's 17.05, but those are live odds. And if that crashes down, I'm going to find that I can go out and bet on it a little bit later today and the tool's going to do all the monitoring for me in the background. And if he drifts, it's going to become more of a worse plus EV bet. But because it's in my private tracker, I can load him up and I can save him. And then I can go and do the same with Hazard. I can do the same with Dries Mertens. I can go to a different game and do a, a load of those players. So I'm really just going to load up in the background a load of players that are maybe close for first goal scorer and for two plus, and I'm going to go over to odds check and I'm just going to be looking at the bookmakers that I have available to me. And I'm just going to put all of those good top prices into my private tracker and then disappear, go on a walk for a couple of hours, come back and then see, oh, look at that. KDB is now 16 to one in Betfred, two plus goals. Not many people are looking at this because there's nothing in the exchanges being traded. So it's not an orb and there's no shops looking at the exchanges. But I know that from um, the player XG tool that they think that the fair odds is 14.1. Now my questions are, it's a decision support tool. Do I agree with everything? Have a look. Is he in? The, is it before team news? Has he been injured? Uh, is there some suspicion that he's going to come on at half time? Right. This is an international match. Um, is he a dead cert to start? Is it after team news? Look at the AGS price. Where's it come from? It actually says on the player XG tool it comes from B source BBP, best bookmaker price, or Betfair Exchange. If it's BBP, do I agree with the BBP? Is that Does that look reasonable compared to what I can see? Or has the scraper picked up something wrong? Has enough margin been applied? If it's Betfair Exchange, do I agree with the Betfair Exchange traded price, the fair odds that have come from that. If everything adds up now, that's giving me a bit of a head start and I can see I've maybe got a 120, 130% EV bet. Why aren't these standard prices on the normal bet tracker put up there by bookie bashing? Because the minute you start putting up a load of these standard prices on a bet tracker where people get spoon fed, then the liability gets eaten up by one or two people and the edge is no longer there. It really is up to people to be doing this themselves and you get rewarded from exploring and playing with these tools and doing it. So that's what I'm doing. I'm using the tool. I'm identifying a few key players. I'm looking at primarily FGS and 2 plus markets. There's no point in looking at the AGS markets because that's the input that goes into the model. And I'm trying to to do some sense checking. And sometimes I look at it and go, I don't agree with the input. It's an autonomous model. So that's where I don't have the confidence, but the confidence isn't with the model, the confidence is with the input that's being used. Um, it would be beautiful if we could have the lineup in the player XG model, because then I can make a 100% market for first goal scorer. Just now I have to, um, the first goal scorer prices, if you added them up for the team, they do get close leading up to kickoff in liquid games. If you add up all the first goal scorers, it comes to 100% market, but not exactly. It could be, and if the AGS price is a little bit all over the place, if the market's all over the place, then it can be a little bit off 100%. We could force it to be 100% if we knew what the lineup was.
because you know everybody on the pitch, and let's make this small assumption that most first goals come from people starting and don't come from people as a sub that come on as a sub and even then you could assign a little bit to them we've looked into getting apis into um the player xg model that actually bring in first goal scorer uh, the lineup sorry that we could then use for first goal scorer we could strip away everyone that wasn't starting and not give a first goal scorer price for them in fact remove them from the player xg model it doesn't matter if they're not in the team and we can adjust the xg for the substitutes and we can normalize first goal scorer to equal 100 percent no matter where we got it from, we just bring the names in and we're building up this library of thousands, tens of thousands of names in the background. Um, and um, we would find a way of matching all of the names and the API would run through to the player XG model. And we could even have a little 442 diagram of all of the players. And you could, well, let's just start there. And then I thought that maybe if you wanted to, you could adjust the formation. And by adjusting the formation, that would adjust the allocation of XG that went to each position. So you could actually manually change XG yourself by saying, no, you know, Kevin De Bruyne is starting further forward, or I do want to give him a little bit of dominance, exactly the same way that the odds compilers do that make this model for the bookmakers. That's what I want to do. And the stumbling block has been getting this API of team news going in. Everyone that I've talked to doesn't want us just to take it and then put it on a service that resells to members. They've said to us, we want £20 per member per month. Do you know what I mean? So we can't afford that. We can't afford to eat that ourselves. Not for something that, you know, this is just a little tweaking of a little tool that we have within Bookie Bashing. £20 per month is like 25% of the monthly subscription. We can't, it's not, this edge isn't 25% of the edge that we offer at Bookie Bashing. So we can't eat it ourselves. We don't want to pass it on to people and say, you've got to pay £20 extra to have this. Um, so it is a little bit of an area where we're stuck. Um, and I'm hope I'm still talking to various different people who are coming up with options of exactly how we can get team news into the tool. But once we get it in there, that's just going to really crystallize the numbers we're getting for first goal scorer in the tool. Um, but the numbers that are coming out just now are still really good. And I use them myself for exchange trading because you see some mad prices. Not very often but that's the whole point of it of course you're not going to see edges everywhere it's like i might look at two or three games and i see one or two players who looks like a mad price on the exchange and i'm just going to go and take him myself once everything adds up so um uh, going back to the original question what is your confidence in the tool my confidence in the tool is full. The methodology is sound. Of course, there are improvements and there are going to be improvements later on in the year, primarily when we can sort out this um, lineup issue that we have. But as always, it's a decision support tool. It's there to aid decision making. And look, if you look at it and you don't agree with the methodology um, um, or the principles behind it, it's cool just not to use it. But I think it, from my perspective, it's the kind of thing that works a lot of the time as long as I've got my common sense hat on and I understand that it's autonomous and I understand that sometimes I might see a figure and then I look into how that figure has been built up and I can simply go, no, actually something went weird in the markets and therefore whilst this looks like a good opportunity, it isn't 
and um, in essence, that is how the tool has been built to but to be used by people with a little bit of common sense and nuance behind them. <laughs> So I often get asked about, as someone that bets relatively higher stakes and sort of does this professionally, how to deal with the inevitable losing ones. And the, the honest answer is that everyone has to deal with it their own way. But over time, over years, I've found different ways of compartmentalizing it. Um, whether you agree or not, is sort of by the by because it's a very personal list and if you have different strategies or comments actually i'd love to know them so that i can maybe share them with people because that is the idea behind you know the community that we have so losing runs are an inevitable part of professional gambling in fact if we want to be a profitable long-term better we need to learn how to lose winning is really easy anyone can win um, early doors in one of my group, I remember, we, the group got off to an absolutely flying start and there were six of us in the syndicate. But one of the guys in the syndicate, that he was new to professional betting. He had invested the same amount of money as the rest of us, um, but he did, hadn't experienced the highs and the lows before. And of course, he absolutely loved this flying start that we got off to. So much so that he withdrew, well, he didn't withdrew, he mentally withdrew some of his investment in the group and took his girlfriend on a really expensive holiday to Russia. This is ages, like over a decade ago, I think. Um, what he didn't, um, what he wasn't mindful of was that we were running seriously hot and Variance was going to catch up with us, as it did, and we went on a significant losing run after that. And the losing run didn't really bite or even get noticed by most of us because we all had our original stake and were just losing house money. But Mikey really noticed the losing run. He was really hurt by the losing run because he'd spent his perceived winnings too quickly and now he was losing not house money but his own money and his own money at a rate of knots that was not comfortable. And we ended up going into a net red, at which point he bailed from the group and bought himself out, said he couldn't handle it anymore. And rather predictably, we then went on a winning run and the whole thing just sucked. It sucked for Mikey. It also sucked for us. We didn't want him to go through such a negative experience. So I wrote a few notes about... Losing runs. The first is loss aversion. Loss aversion is a type of cognitive bias. In psychology, it has been determined that the pain of losing can be twice as powerful as the pleasure of winning. And with losing gamblers, this is not so much of a problem because they have an expectation of loss. But with winning gamblers, this is a real problem because the net experience of the life cycle of a winning better is more pain than pleasure, even when profitable. Then take into account the average odds magnitude i had to look at our various different trackers 
The average odds on the bet tracker, 8.86. DDH8 is 33 to 1. Shots on target, 20 to 1. Darts, 4 to 1. Combo bets, 13 to 1. Horse racing, 25 to 1. The average odds we bet at is almost always higher than evens. This is because, one, we have a psychological proclivity towards a return that is higher than our stakes, and two, the average odds available at the bookmaker is generally higher than evens. By acknowledging that 90 plus percent of our bets are odds against, we acknowledge that we are going to lose the bet the majority of the time, even if we are employing a profitable strategy. Also, understand variance and Monte Carlo. Mathematically, variance equals the sum of the observed values minus the mean of all the observed values squared divided by the number of observations minus one. We can visualize variance by mapping a betting strategy onto a Monte Carlo simulation. A simple Monte Carlo simulation can be inputted into Excel. We can then plot a distribution of expected profit. And we can see that even with a profitable, good plus EV strategy, we are going to be negative or returning very little. Probably more often than we thought or expected that we were going to. Then have a look at losing ones, the length of losing ones. Um, having a look at the golf betting graph since 2019, 2000 bets. It looks like a straight line going up. But golf betting is temporally very slow. There are usually only two, two, one to two, sometimes three tournaments a week. In horse racing, we'll have two races in 15 minutes. Golf betting requires a completely different mindset to betting on horses. In fact, the graph looks very comfortable. Right in the middle, there's like a one-year break-even slight downswing. That's one fifty-two consecutive weeks following the progress of 400 golfers in 80 tournaments. And after all of that being down and yet still employing a profitable strategy. Working in teams can be beneficial for losing ones. Few professional bettors work on their own. There are many benefits to working in a team and the sum of the individual components within a syndicate are greater than the individual parts. One of the best advantages of working within a team is that it is easier to navigate through losing ones. When working on your own, you'll find periods when you start to lose the drive and enthusiasm to continue on the same path that doesn't necessarily hold true when you work in a team. One that's been... De debatable and nearly dismissed um, on the forums is the idea of replaceable bankrolls. And look, if, if replaceable bankrolls don't work for you, that's fine. Um, uh, there's something that I have found very useful. If you can get through sort of day-to-day -day professional plus EV betting without noticing the volatility or being worried about the risk of ruin, then... You've sort of solved the problem a little bit better than I have, but I definitely found that betting higher amounts and increasing the risk of ruin when entering a losing run was psychologically quite challenging. And so I put in place replaceable bankrolls, uh, splitting my bankroll into pots and ensuring that there are reserve pots in the event of a bankroll getting busted. For example, if I have a bankroll of £10,000, I might put 1000 towards horse racing, 1000 towards golf, 1000 towards football coupons. That's 3000 down. I've still got 7000 back. And under each £1,000 bankroll, I would bet high enough that 
the chance of bust might be around 10 to 20%. And that allows me to bet with confidence as busting the bankroll is certainly not the end of the world. I can reload and change strategy if necessary. And this is something that I do frequently and often. Move with the times. I mean, when I look back over the last 10 years, I can see fundamental shifts in the edges that have been profitable. One profitable edge is modeling, you know, the combo bets, goals, corners, and cards. And up to the beginning of 2020, these have been highly profitable. Uh, in March 2020, we went into lockdown and football games ground to a halt. And when they restarted behind closed doors, there was a fundamental shift in the number of cards goals and corners that were recorded in each games. Without crowds, the action stats plummeted to, plummeted to five and ten year lows across the major European leagues. And without action, it is difficult to beat the same game multiples which are primarily structured as overs. And I hadn't moved with the times. I hadn't understood and noticed that these types of bet at that particular time were simply the looking in the wrong place. Looking in, in fact, I was even told by Sharps I should be looking at unders. I'd set the system up to be looking at overs, and I hadn't moved with the times. And finally, my last point on it, and probably the most important, is be a bloody man or a woman. This may sound harsh, but betters can act cowardly during a losing run. They seek to blame someone else for their run of results. A number of people lack the maturity to accept personal responsibility. They enjoy playing the victim and these people are not built for professional gambling. We see this sometimes with golf betting. I see it when someone's on the fence of getting involved. Then they see that I have three winners in three weeks. They see the profit, the huge ROI in that short window, and they decide now's the time. And in the next six weeks, we bust every tournament. I mean, the nine-week period is in profit, but they were only involved in the six-week, which is a heavy loss. And guess what? That new better has started to question the model, the math, the luck. They'll blame anything and anyone as long as they don't have to admit that their original expectations of what was going to happen were wrong. We're not going to be returning 500% ROI every week when the long-term ROI is 30%. This isn't on me or the model. It's on you. So be a man or a woman, stand up and stand tall and have some personal responsibility. If things are not going the way you anticipated, ask yourself some hard questions. Am I doing anything wrong? Am I staking too high? Were my expectations misplaced? How many times in the last three years would a run like this have happened? And most importantly, am I really cut out for this? Not everybody is, especially if you're prone to seeing the glasses half empty. And that is okay. Just go and do something else whatever you are betting on this weekend do make sure it's valuable this is tom Sam.